if it has no works, is dead. Hear the word of the Lord. Loving God, I just pray that the words that come from my mouth might make sense because they're inspired by your name. I pray this in the power of the Holy Spirit, in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, last week uh, we began our walk through the book of James uh, that we're doing in the month of September. So I'm hoping that you've all started reading the book of James. Is that right? Have you at least thought about reading the book of James? Um, if you're um, interested, uh, you can jump on our Facebook site. There's a great eight-minute video that's a really good background and introduction to the book of James if you're wanting the easy way out. And we're also still encouraging you to bring your Bibles to church. Anybody bought their Bible? Oh, there's a couple. Excellent. Um, we're really hoping that as, as you do that, you'll get more familiar with your Bible, but also have the opportunity to see where uh, the passages that we're preaching on uh, sit in the wider uh, view of uh, the book of the Bible and, and the Bible itself. Last week, uh, Graham encouraged us to keep James simple not overcomplicate it. So I'm going to try and continue that theme today. But when I look at a passage uh, that I'm preaching on, I'm generally looking at something that speaks to me in a new or an unusual way, in a way that it hasn't maybe spoken to me before. And I sort of figure that if the Bible's speaking to me in this type of way, it might actually uh, be of interest to those who have to sit there and listen to me speak about it. Generally, about halfway through Saturday, um, my wife Leanne will ask me how my sermon is going. And often I'll respond saying, I've done lots of reading, done lots of listening and reflecting, but I'm still trying to find an angle. Sometimes that angle jumps right out at me. Um, sometimes it comes throughout the week as I'm thinking I'm praying through the passage, but more often than not, it comes with a lot of investigative work. And this week it did, and it came down to me uncovering one word in that passage from James. And it is in the 14th verse, the simple ver word, you. The word um, might sort of seem sort of just innocuous in, as, you, as we're reading. Um, and I, I'm, I was reading it out of um, my NRSV, uh, New Revised Standard Version Bible. Um, there's one there. And I, uh, we normally use that translation um, on a Sunday, and I love that translation mostly because of its um, closeness to the original Greek in the translation. Um, but each translation of the Bible is translated by a human. And they all come from a background and often bring a particular agenda when they're translating. And one of the agendas uh, that the NRSV does have is that it tries to be more gender inclusive in its language. And I'm almost always in favour of that, except this time. The word that is translated as you is the Greek word auton which is more literally translated as him. So as I'm reading it in my NRSV passage, 
and I hear the word you, can faith save you? I'm thinking to myself that what uh, James is asking me is, can my faith save me? But what I think James wants us to be thinking is that my personal faith alone cannot save the poor person who James has just been speaking about and goes on to speak about in the very next verse. James is saying that unless your faith manifests into practical action to help that person, then that faith is dead. And that made much more sense to me because I actually do believe that my faith has saved me. But I also believe that I'm saved not for my own benefit alone, but for the benefit and the salvation of others. So often when I get rattled by a, a, a text, I'll go to the different versions of the Bible that I have sitting on my bookshelves. I probably have at least 12 to 15 different versions that I'll, I'll go to. But one of the versions I love going to is the message. It's not really a translation of the Bible. It's more of a paraphrasing um, by a theologian, Eugene Peterson. And it's a Bible that we'll, I'll often encourage newer Christians uh, to read uh, because it's in, in a, a much more flowing prose sense. Uh, the lead singer of my favourite rock band, uh, U2, um, Bono, has described the message as the most important book of the 21st century. And he recently said to Eugene, you bought the musicality to God's word that I'm sure was there, was always there in intention. There have been some great translations, some very literary translations, but no translations that I've read that speak to me in my own language. So I want to thank you for that. Because it's not a translation, the verse numbers don't exactly line up. So when I looked up verse 14, it gave me the whole section of verse 14 to 17. And so it wasn't actually easy to, to decipher what Eugene uh, took in that, um, in that translation of the Greek word auton. And it didn't really jump out at me in the passage but what jumped out of me was the way that Eugene treated the last verse in that passage, which is James chapter 2, verse 17, which in the NRSV reads, So faith by itself, if it has no works, is dead. More commonly known um, as James, James's famous catchphrase, faith without works is dead. But listen to how Eugene puts it. Isn't it obvious that God talk without God acts is outrageous nonsense? I just love that. And, and, and in that moment, I thought, ah, oh, there's my angle. I'm going to preach about all the things that Christians do and all the things that the church does that's outrageous nonsense. But then I started to think, how hey, am I going to fit that into one sermon? That's going to go for hours. But then I remembered Graham's words, keep it simple. And James really just has two main points in this passage. Don't show favoritism, that's outrageous nonsense. 
And God talk without God acts or faith without works is outrageous nonsense. And last week, Graham summed that up for us in, in a really nice, eloquent way with this expression. God is good. You say you love God, so do good. Like God is and like God does. The letter of, um, of this book of Bible is written by a guy, a guy named James who most uh, scholars are happy to attribute to the brother of Jesus. Now, it may have been one of um, the community that actually put the pen to paper, but uh, generally accepted that this is written by the community that was founded and formed in Jerusalem, um, the first church in Jerusalem, led by James, the brother of Jesus. That first church was actually an illegal gathering. And so they suffered dreadfully at the hands of not just the Jewish authorities, but also the Roman authorities. As you read through the book, you'll find um, some familiarity with the words that James is using. Uh, like every Jewish boy, he grew up with the Proverbs. And you'll see almost a restating of the Proverbs throughout this book. And you can tell that James is highly influenced by the Sermon on the Mount. We know from Paul's writing that James would have experienced poverty firsthand. Um, the, the letters of Paul um, do encourage the churches scattered around um, the emerging new world to contribute funds to the church in Jerusalem that was suffering dreadfully because of a famine. And James makes it very clear from the very first verse who he's talking to. It says, James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ to the 12 tribes in the dispersion. Greetings. The dispersion or the diaspora referred to Jewish people and still does refer to Jewish people living outside of Israel. So James was writing to Jews specifically Jewish Christians. And in the same way that Jesus is most critical to the religious leaders of the time, and in the same way that Paul saves his, his harshest judgment to those who are already converted, James directs his slap-in-the-face wake-up call to Jewish Christians who should know better than most. James's letter is concerned, and some might say it's almost preoccupied with, the character of these Jewish Christians. You can try and reduce faith to a sense of a series of statements that people profess. But for James, faith is what is at work and should be seen to be at work in a person's life. People act on the basis of what they believe to be true. So if people say one thing and do something else, James would actually say that their faith is what underlies their actions, not what underlies their words. People must believe something if they are to act at all. 
The question for us is whether the faith that actually shapes our lives is a faith in Jesus Christ or is it a faith in something else? If it is something else, then James would say that what we're doing is outrageous nonsense. James in this passage is calling us back to a central teaching of faith. Love your neighbour as yourself. Uh, last week we, we heard about the, the, the great commandment, the Shema. And this is uh, known as, as the royal law, to love your neighbour as yourself. And this is nothing new. It's throughout the Old Testament. It's throughout the Gospels. It's all through Paul's writings. But what characterises James's use of this commandment is its practical application to ordinary life. If you say it, just do it. Now, um, you may or may not be aware that um, the coiner of that um, famous phrase, Nike, um, is uh, now celebrating, uh, I think it's about this week, 30 years of just do it. 30 years ago, makes me feel really old, they introduced uh, that phrase, just do it. And they've been in the news this week um, because of their new promotion um, with um, Colin Kaepernick, who has, I reckon, one of the best afros that I've ever seen. Um, and he's been known and famous for being the star quarterback of the San Francisco 49ers. Uh, but he's more famously known now uh, as uh, the main instigator of what is known as the Take a Knee uh, protest that was um, carried out by many African-American um, footballers during the singing of the national anthem at NFL games, uh, which was closely linked to the Black Lives Matter campaign. Kaepernick, um, in this new promotion, narrates uh, a two-minute commercial, which is actually really great. And in the middle of it, he says these words. Believe in something even if it means sacrificing everything. Uh, interesting thing, um, Colin Kaepernick is no longer playing football because no one will sign him. And um, this uh, new campaign has led to people boycotting, um, even uh, burning their Nike shoes and apparel. But I suspect, particularly these words that Colin Kaepernick speaks, um, would have made him on the same page as our letter writer James. But I think James would have been far more direct. James would have probably said, how can you believe in something if you're not prepared to sacrifice anything for it? If faith is reduced to a few simple words like, I believe then the expression of faith can be reduced to a few simple words to a refugee, a homeless person, or an abuse or domestic violence victim, like, have a nice day. Or thinking that by having a sponsor child absolves us from any other care for the poor. Speaking out our faith is really important. 
But what is far more important to James is how we live it out in our practical daily lives. And the key, I think, when you are looking at this passage and trying to wrestle with this idea of favoritism and the illustration of the poor man and the rich man and, and thinking, well, actually, in the Western world, we're all fairly well off, is trying to not necessarily um, see this as James encouraging us to prioritise the poor, which certainly he's doing. And if you read through Scripture, um, it's pretty uh, clear that God has a priority for the poor. Graham reminded us last week that James has already said to prioritise the widow and the orphan. But let's have a look at some of the context behind this illustration. In the world that James lived in, you could show favouritism to the rich person who was coming into your community and that might elevate your social status. And that was tr quite attractive uh, to that early church who was trying to uh, recover from being uh, persecuted and downtrodden. But, oh, here comes a rich guy. I might get noticed. Also in James's world, there was a strong correlation between seeing if a person uh, was blessed or favoured and if they were rich. Now, if you know your Gospels, Jesus talks strongly against this idea. And James is also reinforcing this. By showing your favoritism, James is saying, is that we're really just showing who we believe in. Ourselves. Ironically, in James's time, it was the wealthy that persecuted the church. And because God's priority is clearly for the poor, the widow and the orphan, if the church is not aligning itself with the poor, then we're going to see less of God because that's where God is and that's where God wants us to be. There are literally thousands of examples throughout Scripture of how to deal with the poor and social injustice. If you look in the Gospels of Matthew and Mark, one in every ten verses on average says something about the poor or social justice. When you get to Luke's Gospel, it's one in every seven verses. John's a little bit more poetic and he doesn't uh, have such a focus on it, but he's certainly clear as well. If the church is not standing with and for the poor and standing with and for social justice, then what we're standing for is outrageous nonsense. If we're finding our motivation in our own self-advancement, whether that be obvious and deliberate by neglecting others or more subtly by resisting change because it'll make us uncomfortable or complaining about others not pulling their weight because we're inconvenienced or ensuring that our preferences are maintained, then what we're motivated by is outrageous nonsense. I, for one, think the world has seen 
much more than enough outrageous nonsense from the church. Perhaps it's time we practiced what we preached. We lived what we profess. We understand that what we believe means that we should act in godly and Christ-like ways. Deliberately seeking first the kingdom of God and knowing that our salvation is always for the benefit of those who are yet to know the awesome and transforming love of God. In the next few weeks, we're going to get punched in the guts by James again and again, but we can take it. We sometimes need to be shuffled in the right direction. James doesn't look at the world and think, oh, they'll know Christians because they're all the the, the busy people doing all the good things. James looks at us in light of who Jesus is and how radically we have been encountered and says, because of this, you should be transformed and living transformed lives. My prayer is that as a church, we can put our outrageous nonsense aside and know that we are the living, breathing, practical examples of God's love in the world. How else will people know what God's love is like unless we take the time to show it to them? Can I pray? Loving God, overwhelm us with that love. We thank you for James's words, even though they are often hard to hear. Help us to look at our own lives and to take that outrageous nonsense out and be left only with your love and the motivation to seek first your kingdom. We ask this in your mighty name. Amen. Anne is now going to lead us in a time of prayer.